I am talking to Marion Matthews, who is running in District 27, running for re-election. And before you became a representative, that you were a lawyer. And I guess we should say to listeners that you were a lawyer for me in a case. Remember that? Yeah, I do. I do. You're one of my favorite clients. <laughs> and we sued the governor. We sued the governor at, regarding the you're leaving the commission on the status of women. And Maureen Sanders was co-counsel with me in the case. And we, as I recall, got a a nice settlement out of the case. We did. Yes. We won the case. It's always good when the legal system that delivers justice. So you were a lawyer and a teacher as well. I've had a series of careers. I practiced law for about 20 years, and for a little bit of time, I I did quite a few political kinds of things, managed campaigns and so forth, and then I went to work for a nonprofit, PB&J Family Services, in Albuquerque, South Valley, and I was their first development director and sort of created the development function there, writing grants and raising money for them. PBNJ is a wonderful organization. At the same time, I started teaching part-time at CNM, teaching business law. And then over about five years of sort of doing both, I left PBNJ. It's very intense kind of work to be in, in a facility like that. And uh, became a full-time instructor at CNM in the business department, continued to teach business law, and also began teaching the Introduction to Entrepreneurship class because I had owned some businesses. And when I started teaching it, we had one section, and by the time I left and retired, we had four sections. So entrepreneurship took off, just took off. Great. Let's talk about your involvement in politics that led to your being appointed to District 27. Well, The state was won for the first time by a Democrat in 2018 by Dr. Bill Pratt, who was a fine gentleman. Bill was 83 when he won the seat. And the reason that I'm now in the position was that he unfortunately died on Christmas Day in uh, 2019. And to fill an unexpired term for this particular seat meant an appointment by the county commission in Bernalillo County. There were eight or nine of us. We all got to submit the same kind of materials, a resume and a cover letter. And we all had four minutes to do a presentation before the county commission itself. And it's sort of interesting because my opponent, my Democratic opponent in the primary, myself, and then the two Republicans who are vying to be their party's candidate in the general election All four of us were among those people who applied. And of us four, the only one who got nominated was me. And I was appointed by a five to zero vote unanimous decision of the county commission. That was on January 7th. And I think on January 21st, the session started. So it was a little bit like drinking water from a fire hose, getting ready to all of a sudden, be a state representative starting a 30-day session. But it turned out to be a really great experience. I'm glad you say that because I knew that you were looking forward to doing it. But once you got there, 
And I would sit in the gallery and think, oh, I wonder if she's as enthusiastic about it now as she was before. <laughs> so I'm glad well, to hear that you were. <laughs> I, I was. Now, I, I think one morning at about 2 or, two or 3 o'clock in the morning, I was sort of sitting there thinking, now, why am I doing this? But 99% of the time, it was a really great experience. First of all, the other House members were incredibly supportive, particularly the House Democrats were incredibly supportive. There's now, with my appointment, the women on the Democratic side became a majority in the Democratic caucus in the House. And there's a picture of all of us. And we have just these wonderful women who, a lot of them are school teachers and just did different different backgrounds. And they are great legislators. And they were very supportive and very helpful for me. And I just kind of jumped in and actually passed a bill and was involved in some other legislation that I want to go back and finish. It didn't always make it through the first time, sometimes just because of the 30-day session, the time is so short. For example, there was a, a bill that I was the sponsor in the House to increase the civil statute of limitation time for the victims of child sexual abuse to bring their lawsuits. And that made it all the way through to the Senate. It never got heard in the Senate just because time ran out. And that's the kind of bill I really want to go back and work on, along with my my bill to make it a little easier for first responders like EMTs and police officers to qualify for PTSD coverage under workers' compensation. That was the first bill I introduced, and it's a bill that's so close to my heart. And that didn't pass either because of the time? Well, that one was a little strange. It sailed through the House. It was a very popular bill. And it pretty much sailed through the House. And then it got wrapped up in a, sometimes they put bills together, and it got wrapped up with some other bills. And we went to the Senate for the first hearing, and a couple Republican state senators started talking about how they'd been in the military, they'd seen a lot of terrible things, and police officers couldn't possibly experience PTSD, and this was just a way to get them a lot of extra benefits, and it was kind of stunning, and I shared some statistics about the fact that more police officers now die from suicide than from on-the-job incidents. There were police officers there talking about the experience of themselves and others. It didn't matter. They were just like, oh, no, this can't possibly be true. And they stripped that part of the bill from this bigger package of legislation. So very disappointing. The year before, they had passed one just like it for firefighters. But this year, they didn't want to do it for police officers and EMTs. And that's just wrong. These are really, really tough jobs, and we need to do right by these people. Let's talk about the back and forth that you had with your constituents, because you were not unknown to people because you had been involved in local efforts in the districts. Yeah. Well, I've lived up in this district for more than 30 years, and when I first moved up here, it was just as red as could be and stayed that way for a long time. And then in about 2016 or so when Hillary was running and 
Deb was running and Tim was running, and I got involved in doing some door-to-door campaigning for them. And as I did it, I was kind of thinking, well, doggone, there just seems to be a lot more Democrats. And so I pulled some records, and sure enough, for example, the precinct that I live in, which is across from Tanawan West, the predominant registration is Democratic. And so I really began to look at the area a little differently, and I went to our our ward chair, and I said, and this is before the 2018 election, and I said, if you will make me vice chair of the ward so that I have a little bit broader scope to work with, I will grassroots organize this ward, which is seven precincts, and see if we can't do a good job of turning out Democrats. And he's sort of like, Go for it if you want, you know, kind of like, you must be crazy lady. And anyway, but he didn't, he didn't stand in the way by any means. And so I went out and recruited a few other precinct chairs to help me. And we started knocking on doors, doing meet and greets. Sometimes we'd have three people show up. Other times we'd have 25 people show up. And it was just amazing. And we started a kind of a newsletter. And we now have something like about 100 people in that newsletter. And for the coordinated campaign, the effort to elect Democrats in 2018, including Bill Pratt, I worked with the Democratic coordinated campaign. And this ward, which had never had grassroots Democratic organization before, provided 60 volunteers to help get out the Democratic vote in 2018. Wow. It was stunning, absolutely stunning, and made a huge difference in the outcome. Michelle won the district easily. A number of the other Democrats running won the district, and it became obvious that the demographics had changed. Now, that doesn't mean this is a deep blue place. It's not. It's very much of a swing district. Republicans, in terms of registration, still outnumber Democrats by a few hundred, but there's over 6,000 declined estates, independents in the district. So it became, it became a swing district. And there's no question, because it had been held forever by a longtime Republican, Blair, Blair Naga, who, who became ill and had to resign the position, and then he, he subsequently died. The Republicans want the seat back, and the two Republicans who are vying to be the opponent in the general election are both real conservative. One is a former ICE agent, and the other is an evangelical Christian, which is, I'm not knocking her religion or anything, but is, you know, has conservative views. So it should be an interesting race and an interesting situation. I come into it because I did this grassroots organization with Gosh, just off the top, knowing a hundred or more people in my neighborhood. And one of the things I'm most proud of in terms of, you know, you have to raise money for, for a campaign is that more than 20% of my donors are from within the district. And that is, that is a real sign to me of support. And many of them, we didn't solicit. I mean, it wasn't that I called them up and asked them for money. They simply started sending money in through the website or sending checks in. I've really been touched. I don't know what else to say by their support and their friendship for me. 
Oh, well, that's wonderful to hear. And it's good to have that experience and then have it turn out so well. Yeah, sometimes you do things, you do political things, and nothing much comes from it. But to me, it's been a, a time to to build some real genuine friendships and relationships with people. And that makes me feel really good. And are they coming to you with ideas for legislation? Some of them do. Several who have reached out about various issues, and there's two or three things that I'm going to continue to pursue, assuming that I am returning to the House. And what I'm focusing on, actually, right at the moment is getting ready for the special session, which we're going to have at some point in June. I mean, this is kind of an interesting situation because when I decided to possibly be a state representative, it was at the time when the state was flush with money, the new governor was leading the charge to do great things, and I thought, what a great time. We could really, really work on some of New Mexico's long-time problems and really make great progress, and I was really excited about that prospect, and then quite frankly, overnight, that has just been turned upside down. We are no longer flush with money, and we still have a governor who has great ideas and and wants great things to happen, but is obviously having to focus a lot of time and energy on managing the pandemic. And so instead of looking at, oh, here's some new things we can try to solve old problems, we now have to focus on issues like economic recovery. And that doesn't mean we can't try new things to make that happen, but it just means that the the situation for New Mexicans with the economic collapse, the pandemic, and the decline in oil and gas prices, we have a lot of very serious economic challenges. And I know that our priorities are to not allow health care education, and public safety fall back into what happened in the prior decade, which was basically where all of those kinds of things that are so critical to the to the health of the society were part of an austerity program where they were cut and cut and cut to the point where the outcomes in our schools are not where we want them to be. Our kids are not getting the education they should get, where our health care and I'm on the health committee, and I really listen to testimony all through February. Sometimes it would bring tears to my eyes of how things have been really important programs have been cut and cut and cut, and people were suffering as a result. And then, of course, we had incredible violent crime and levels of crime in the city and in the state. And in the city, we were almost, at that point, four times the national average for violent crime. And these are not these are not acceptable results in our schools. They're not acceptable level of violence in our community, and not acceptable healthcare outcomes for our people. So what we're now going to be, I think, this is just my personal opinion, but we have to focus on not losing the ground we made up, and we have to figure out we have to be very careful about our priorities and make sure that we're investing in our people, in our kids and in the systems that we absolutely have to have work very well in order to not grow the violence, to not grow the poverty, to not grow the poor outcomes for our children. And do you think that that will be possible? 
do you think that we'll be able to maintain a level of safety and and having systems that work? I think it's not going to be easy. I think we're going to have to be somewhat creative. I think it was for my interview in the Albuquerque Journal where they ask us a series of questions, and the first one was, well, how are you going to balance the budget with all these problems? And my answer was, first of all, we have to start with everything's on the table. And we don't start with one hand or two hands tied behind our back. As far as I'm concerned, we have two permanent funds. I don't want to raid those funds, but this, this may be, this may be the rainy day. They're often called rainy day funds, and this may be the rainy day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not sure what could be in terms of financial situation maybe worse than what we're potentially looking at. I don't mean just the amount of money coming into the state. I'm talking about the needs of our citizens. Mm-hmm. I think it's 141,000 unemployed right now. It's a huge number. Their benefits are going to run for a period of time. The, the federal $600 a week that some of them are getting is going to end on July 31. And I know from my constituents how just frankly frightened they are about how they're going to, they and their families are going to survive if, if they're reduced for long periods of time to living on state unemployment. And then what do they do once that runs out? So this whole system has shown not only in New Mexico, but across the country, but it's really shown where the safety net has giant holes in it. And we saw that. We saw that when people were losing their jobs, and as a result, they lost their health insurance. And that means in the middle of a pandemic, we have people suddenly without health insurance. They can't jump onto the private insurance system in order to get coverage. They can't afford it. Mm -hmm. Or it wasn't even open to them. That's been another problem. The federal government wouldn't reopen Obamacare. I mean, can you imagine, you know, you've got a family, you've got children, and all of a sudden you don't have any health insurance and you're in the middle of a very serious health situation. And even if no one gets COVID, you still all of a sudden don't have health insurance if somebody becomes ill or is in an accident. It's it's terrifying. Yes. And if it wasn't for Congress having passed the pandemic, unemployment, assistance program for self-employed people, for gig workers, those people wouldn't have had anything either. Yeah, so Congress is coming in there, and surely the state will decide to do that also. Here's just the reality of the situation. The federal government has a printing press, so to speak, and can generate money. (laughs) That the state of New Mexico does not have a printing press that generates money. (laughs) So to some extent, we have to rely upon what is going to happen and the programs that the federal government is uh, providing money from, and the, and the Federal Reserve is providing some monies. And, and of course, we have to supplement that with, with our monies. But, you know, we, we deferred everybody paying state income tax until, I think, July, and because of everything being shut down, the grocery receipts tax collections are way, way down because yeah. people are spending money. So it's a challenging time. Yes. <laughs> at, at a minimum, it's a challenging time. Well, let's move a little bit for a minute to some of the women's issues that we talk about on Women's Focus. 
let's talk about reproductive choice. Where do you stand on that? Well, I'm endorsed by Planned Parenthood in New Mexico votes, and I have been active in trying to protect women's reproductive health care rights for years and years. I was the deputy attorney general when Tom Udall was the attorney general of the state, and I used to go over and testify against various kinds of bills that were being introduced to limit women's rights to reproductive health care and choices. And you see a lot of the same kind of arguments happening now. So I've been involved in the efforts to protect those rights forever and ever, it feels like. You know, it's like some battles never end. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and, And this is one of them. I understand it's a difficult issue for people, but I'm a politician. I mean, now I hold a political office, and I guess that makes me a politician. And I cannot fathom how that should give me the right or the authority to tell other women and other families what they should do in making these kinds of difficult decisions for themselves. It should not be the choice of the political leaders to make those choices. It has to be the choice of the woman and her health care provider and others that she chooses to confer with not people who have been elected to the state legislature. Okay, and we should have said earlier when we talked about what you had done in the session that you came in on that you had put money in to capital outlay for the Commission on the Status of Women, that you supported the the effort to bring back the Commission on the Status of Women. Yes, I did. And all the capital outlay things kind of started going to the governor's desk. It was in the time period when it became clear that there were going to start to be some real financial issues coming up for the country. And I know that she was vetoing quite a few things, and I think she vetoed the uh, the money for the furnishings and so forth for the, for the commission, along with lots and lots, all the entire road projects, a whole bill of road projects got got vetoed. The the difficult time started back, I'm trying to remember sort of the time period, but kind of late February, early March, when it became obvious that despite what the President of the United States was saying about hoaxes and all kinds of other things, that this was going to be potentially a very serious situation. Yeah, yeah. And paid family leave? Let me say this about paid family leave. I am generally supportive of paid family leave. I think it's a good kind of a program. It did not come up in the 30-day session at all that I have any memory of, and I think I would remember it. And given all the new the new challenges that have come up, I haven't, for the special session, heard any discussion that it will come up in the special session. And so oh, no. I have not focused on it at all. I am... My primary focus right now, because I have a background in business and entrepreneurship, 49% of New Mexico's jobs are from small business, which is a huge number. And I'm really trying to figure out some ways that we can do a stimulus package for small business. So, one, we don't lose all those jobs that they do come back. And, two, that we keep small business as a backbone of our economy, in part because of the jobs they create. But also because I know having taught entrepreneurship that for many small business people, 
it's their dream. It's more than just a livelihood. It's their dream, their passion, and it adds a kind of value to the community and to the society that maybe a big box store doesn't quite do the same. You know, when you go into your small local restaurant or your bakery and the people know you and they make special things, I mean, it's just a different world and there's a world I do not want to see go away. Well, it must feel good to be in a position where you can do something about that, where your voice will make a difference. The good part is I am in a position where I can work on these problems. The other side of it is, wow, they are much bigger than I ever thought they were going to be. And so on one hand, the challenge is fascinating. And on the other hand, the challenge is is, is frightening. But all you can do is is do your best and try to do right by the people in New Mexico. Thank you for sharing your ideas with us. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm going to add this. Not only was Susan my client years ago, but she's been my friend for known each other, I don't know how long, back when the National Women's Political Caucus started. Yeah. So back a very long time. Well, it's great to talk to you. Well, thank you so much, Susan.